Friends, it's with great joy that I'm able to return with you this morning to a series of messages that we began about a month ago, but since then we had a little uh, a week of COVID and a uh, celebration of God's goodness during the Thanksgiving season, but we're able to return back to the second of Jesus' letters to the seven churches. As I mentioned, you're going to see a number of pictures today that were taken uh, just a few months back as myself and a group of students and professors and pastors from our seminary up in Edmonton, some of our students because uh, they take their courses at distance. We had three students from Africa. We had students with Singapore connections, and we all came together from different cultures to walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and our brothers and sisters in faith before us. We walked through the ruins of these ancient cities. There's an old saying that if you want to see the most amazing Roman ruins, don't go to Rome. Don't even go to Italy go to the modern country of Turkey because there's entire cities from the Roman era that have been uncovered and that you can visit. It's a wonderful place. Modern Turkey is not only a safe place to visit, but it's, uh, it's just very hospitable as well. I've traveled in, in numerous Muslim countries and the Turkish Muslim uh, country uh, experience is very different from an Arab country. The people are just a different culture and they're very hospitable. Uh, We enjoyed our trip immensely. But as we travel today, we're going to move. We were a few weeks ago in the city of Ephesus, but today we are going to be traveling up the coast a little ways to the city of Smyrna. And as we get to Smyrna and we hear Jesus' letter to the church in that city, you will detect as it perfectly suited his letter to the church in Ephesus, the letter of Jesus to the church in Smyrna is perfect. It's not only perfect because it's in the word of God, but by perfect, I mean it fits perfectly. It's perfectly fitting. It speaks to what the Christians in that city were experiencing. It gives them the correction that they need. It gives them the encouragement that they need. It gives them the promise that they need to live their lives in difficult circumstances. And as we saw last week, and we will with each one of the letters, Jesus' letters follow a similar pattern. He addresses himself to them, reflecting on John's vision of the glorified Lord that he saw on the Isle of Patmos as he was imprisoned there. But Jesus then, he commends them. He begins by commending uh, what they are doing for Christ and the kingdom of God. He gives them a job well done. But then if they are going astray, embracing false teaching, doing something that is harmful to themselves or their witness, he then addresses that directly and then he corrects it with admonishment. And then he wraps it up with wonderful promise. When we get to Smyrna though, something's missing. There is, after the commendation, there is no accusation Because this church is unique that in the midst of their suffering and trials, they didn't go off track. They didn't compromise. They didn't give in. They endured and they persevered. And Jesus has nothing but positive things to say and to encourage them. And I find that very encouraging to each one of us because we live in such an easy time compared to the Christians who lived in Smyrna those years ago. And yet we see the direction our culture takes. We can't go with the culture, that we will become increasingly 
counterculture as we stay faithful to the teaching of God's word and follow Jesus as our Lord. We will be further and further out of step and said to be out of touch with the direction society is going. And because of that, we won't always be welcome. Well, that is the daily experience of the Christians in Smyrna, as we'll see as we go along. So let's be reminded of one of the themes of this of this letter. I often see the themes Jesus speaks of in his letters reflected in John's other great composition, the Gospel of John. One of the most precious stories in the Gospel of John is the death of Jesus' close friend, Lazarus. And as he tarried and allowed Lazarus' illness to get worse to the point of death, Jesus shows up and Lazarus has been in the grave for days. Jesus didn't even make it to the funeral much less be there in time to heal him. And he met both of those sisters, Martha and Mary. And in that precious meeting with them, that interaction, Jesus asked Sister Martha that question. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's a question, a pointed question, not only for Martha, but for each one of us who trust Jesus for our eternal salvation. And this is something that Jesus reflects on, that he holds life and death in his hands. He is the one with power. He defeated death and broke the power of death, which is sin, through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection. Through faith in Jesus, his resurrection and victory over death becomes our victory over death. And this is the context of the promise Jesus is making to the people in Smyrna who are not only suffering, who are not only impoverished, but they're also being put to death for their faith. So let's look at Smyrna. We saw Ephesus, the church that lost its first love. Today we turn our attention, if you have your Bible, open it to Revelation chapter 2, Jesus' letter to Smyrna, the persecuted. As you see that picture under Smyrna, the persecuted, that is a famous episode from the history of the Christian church in Smyrna. If you know your church history, you know that Smyrna's greatest preacher, the leader, the the bishop over all the churches, he's what we would call the, the area or regional minister. He ministered to all the churches that had their own pastors. He was up in years. In fact, he was 86, a wonderful age to be. He was still active and he was beloved. His name was Polycarp and he had been taught personally by his master and mentor, the Apostle John, down in Ephesus. Polycarp knew John from the time he was 20 to his mid-30s when God finally took John home to heaven. And Polycarp, ministering in the same steps and the power and the faith as the Apostle John, had an incredible impact on the city of Smyrna. But as I mentioned, Smyrna, the Christians are being persecuted. They're out of step with that proud Roman society. They don't fit in anymore. There are some political changes that took place and religious changes that saw Christians really left out in the cold. 
And Bishop Polycarp stayed true through all of this. In fact, he was not only beloved by the churches in Smyrna, but even the Roman authorities had great compassion and respect for old Bishop Polycarp. Well, finally, the day came where Polycarp himself, right from Rome itself, the orders came that these Christians had to make sacrifice to Caesar or suffer the consequences. And Bishop Polycarp, the local authorities, they didn't want to prosecute or persecute him, and so they were hoping he would flee the city, but he refused to. The Christians begged him to leave because nobody wanted to see this this godly old man uh, thrown to the lions or the gladiators, but he wouldn't budge. In fact, God gave him a dream uh, that his pillow was on fire, and yet he had a wonderful sleep on that blazing pillow. He said, this is revealed to me how God plans for me to die. Well, we know the famous quote of Polycarp. He was finally apprehended and taken right into the stadium. The stadium, the word used in the ancient writings, is, is actually competitive theater because, as we'll see, Smyrna was in competition with their two rival cities. You think the Battle of Alberta is, is rough and tough between Edmonton and Calgary. Smyrna had two rival cities. They had Ephesus to the south and Pergamum to the north. They would do anything even taking lives to outdo their rival cities. Well, they had a competitive theater with the greatest gladiator sports, the greatest blood sports, lions tearing Christians apart, criminals being executed publicly. They did everything bigger and better. And Polycarp was taken to that theater and they gave him one final chance, just burn a pinch of incense and say that Caesar is Lord. And the most famous quote in early church history, Polycarp says, 80 and six years I have served him and never did, and he never did me any injury. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? I've served him for 86 years and he's done me no harm. How could I blaspheme Jesus by burning a pinch of incense to Caesar? He refused Most people in there, but because it takes place, a very place you're going to see this morning in Smyrna, this is what happened afterwards. It says, while Polycarp spoke these and many other things, he was filled with confidence and joy. His countenance was full of grace, so that not merely did it not fall as if troubled by the things said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald to proclaim in the midst of the theater three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This proclamation having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathen and the Jews who dwelt at Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the overthrower of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice to the emperor or to worship the gods. Speaking thus, they cried out and besought Philip, the Asiarch, to let loose a lion upon Polycarp. But Philip answered that it was not lawful for him to do so because the appointed time of the show of wild beasts had already been finished. Then it seemed good to them to cry out with one consent, that Polycarp should be burnt alive, fulfilling 
the prophetic dream that God gave him. That's exactly what they did in the competitive theater of Smyrna. That theater was lost for about 1,800 years. There was a German archaeologist during the First World War who thought he had found it. And in the last five years, it's been discovered and is presently being unearthed, as we'll see in a picture in just a few minutes. Well, let's go to Smyrna today. Let's visit Smyrna. Smyrna today, an incredibly beautiful city. It's built on the largest natural harbor in the Mediterranean. And because of that, from ancient times, it's always been a busy, bustling seaport with lots of goods being shipped to the interior of the Turkish Anatolian Peninsula. It's been an ancient Greek city. In the very earliest days of Smyrna, it lived on the other side of the harbor where you see the water. It was on the south side of the harbor. And you know who lived there? Amazons. Not Wonder Woman, not a superhero group of women, but they were actually the female warriors of ancient history, the Amazons. This was their colony at Smyrna. But it began to die out, the ancient Greek city, until Alexander the Great passed through there 300 years before Jesus. And there's a famous account in his history that he was given a dream that for the city to flourish, it had to move to the north side of the harbor, and they did. They tore down the city and rebuilt it on the north side of the harbor. And from the harbor all the way up the slope of Mount Pagos to the very top, it grew into be one of the greatest cities. In fact, it was called the ornament, the jewel of Ionia. It was a beautiful city, but it's not Smyrna anymore. Today, it's the third largest city in Turkey, and it's called Izmir. And that change happened for a reason, because sadly... In 1922, the ancient city that was continuously occupied by the Greek people for thousands of years, it came to an end. It came to an end, and we'll see how it happened. Just to remind you, here's a map of Smyrna where it takes place. Remember, we were down in the south at Ephesus. We're going to go in a clockwise circular pattern with these letters. And look how up the coast, Smyrna, located on that beautiful giant harbor, that's where we're at. And you see those two competing cities with Smyrna, Pergamum in the north and Ephesus in the south? That's very important. They always had to outdo those two other great ancient cities. But where did Smyrna go? Why is Izmir there today? At the end of the world of World War I, Smyrna was an ancient Greek city. It had four quarters. There was the Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Armenian quarter, and the Greek quarter, very similar to the city, the ancient city of Jerusalem. They had these four ethnic quarters. The funny thing about Smyrna is the Armenian and Greek Christians, the Jews, the Muslims, they lived in wonderful harmony. And it was all under the rule of the Muslim Ottoman Empire, you know, the Ottomans ruled that region for 400 years from the fall of Constantinople, the end of the Roman Empire, all the way to the First World War. They chose sides, and they chose to choose the German side. They lost the war. They lost their empire. As the Ottoman Empire fell, the nation of Greece across the water said, this is our chance to take back the land that we had 500 years ago, and they invaded Turkey. 
or what was the Ottoman Empire. And the Greek army there fought the Turkish army. Well, the Turks were now a young nationalist country led by Kemal Ataturk. And he led his army and they won the final battle of the Greco-Turkish War in Smyrna. They took the city, the Greek army evacuated back to Greece. Everybody was happy. That was on about September 9th, 1922. But after four days, the Turkish soldiers began to become unruly. They had many irregulars and mercenaries and others, and it got out of hand. It became not just an occupation, but a massacre. After three or four years of war, it was time for payback. And the Turkish army committed one of the greatest atrocities outside of the Holocaust in human history. It's known today as the burning of Smyrna. The city was consumed. It burned for nine days. Those pictures were taken from uh, allied battleships, that, British ships that were parked off the coast of Turkey at that time. And of course, they burned the two quarters, the Armenian and the Greek quarters where the Christian population was occupied. Death tolls are so hard to figure out because so many died in the fire and the great pillage and the massacre that followed. Approximately 100,000 Greek and Armenian Christians lost their life. And this city that was majority Christian had no Christians after that. In fact, Smyrna ceased to exist. Kamal Ataturk, they tried to cover up this atrocity. They tried to blame anyone else but themselves. But even today, the Turks are finally admitting that in 1922, they did a, an unconscionable thing. The city, to cover it up, was renamed the next year as Izmir. Next year is the 100th anniversary of the founding of modern Turkey in Izmir. And because of that, they're trying to overlook this terrible event and find their more ancient roots of the city and to celebrate those roots. Here's a picture from atop Mount Pagos looking down the, 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 to the harbor. As you go up there, there's an ancient fort. And as you notice among the big parkade building, that's, that's for parking right in the middle. We're used to those. And all of the red roofs, you notice some open areas. And those open areas are excavations of ancient Smyrna. Izmir was jealous even today of Ephesus. They were jealous because Ephesus has so many tourists, this wonderful archaeological park, and all of their ruins were under the ruins of the burning of Smyrna and the rebuilding of shanty towns on top. Nothing was exposed except the old marketplace. It was very limited. And so they have begun expropriating and buying all of the property on that ancient slope, and they're in the process of uncovering it. And in the next three, four, five years, it's going to be transformed and an amazing place to visit the ancient city from the time of the Apostle Paul and Jesus' letter to Smyrna. Well, that's the view from Mount Pagos. As we walked from way up there, we were walking down. We got about halfway down in that open area, and we ran into a fence. It was off limits, completely off limits. You'll see me there in a blue ball cap in the foreground, and I'm trying to find or see what's inside because this is the theater. This was the heart of the city. This is where they burned Bishop Polycarp. 
but it was all off limits. They want to keep it completely secret until it's all finished and looks like the great theater at Ephesus and is restored for concerts. They want to celebrate their centennial in this theater with a giant concert. So it's all off limits. But our guide, who is an emergency room doctor and well-known in the city, he sweet-talked the guards. And the next picture showed we got to go into the site. And they said, but don't take any pictures. (laughs) We don't have cameras, but we have phones. What happens when you push this button? Well, we're taking pictures. But it was... Yeah, I shouldn't confess to that. But there you see the ancient theater. We're on the slope covered up where the ancient seats are covered up. It's an enormous ancient theater that's being uncovered bit by bit. And already you can see the main floor down below where Polycarp testified to his faith in Jesus and gave his life because of it. It's an incredible thing to see after almost 2,000 years. It's now being uncovered. Well, we have a peek at that, and then we went on down. We walked further down to the Agora. The Agora was the marketplace. Look at this beautiful big area. There's our guide, Karem. He's, he's, he's teaching us there in the, in the blue sweatshirt. And, and, and the marketplace is not only important because you did all of your business there, but there was the financial Agora, and there was the political Agora. Literally, there was the marketplace for food and items, And there's the marketplace of ideas. The trouble was that as a Roman colony city, you had to, during Roman times, you had to enter the Agora through gates. You had to enter by showing you were a good citizen by taking a pinch of incense, burn it on the altar, and pronounce a blessing on the Roman emperor. Basically, Caesar is Lord. Christians in good conscience couldn't do that. Now, for years, they were able to. And I mentioned something took place after 70 AD. Before 70, Christians were just regarded as Jews. We were part of Judaism. But after the destruction of the temple and the civil war against Rome, the Jews recognized that Christians didn't support them in that war, and they pronounced an anathema. They formally separated from Christianity. Up until then, as a Christian Jew, you could go to synagogue on Sabbath, on Saturday, and on Sunday morning, you were in church. But after that, they rewrote the prayer service in the synagogues, and part of that was pronouncing a curse on the Nazarene and his followers. So the synagogue was closed to you because you would have to curse Jesus and his followers. It was not only heartbreaking because families were split along religious lines, but it was devastating to Christians in the Roman world because the Jews were immune from burning that incense. They were given special status. And once we believers in Jesus were recognized as separate from Jews, we didn't have that security any longer. We had to burn the incense. And we were shut out of the marketplace. And because of that, the Christians in Smyrna were incredibly poor. They couldn't do business in the major places. They were shut out not only of the financial marketplace, but the marketplace of ideas, the public forum. Now, this is something that we're seeing increasingly that in our polarized society, dissenting opinions are being anathemized once again and shut out. 
And if you don't agree with somebody, you call them misinformation, you call them hateful, and they're no longer welcome in the marketplace of ideas. I think that's the direction Western culture is going. Maybe not the rest of the world, but we'll be able to, I think, better empathize and learn from our brothers and sisters in Smyrna as time goes by. Well, that's the Akora, and the uh, next slide shows the Basilica. This is the, uh, the marketplace of ideas. And the Agora is interesting because it looks like a big flat area, but it's honeycombed underneath with passageways. And you get down in those passageways, and the one on the right is famous, and it's locked. We weren't able to go in because the walls are covered in graffiti. Yeah, it's not that goofy spray paint that you see on uh, grain cars that you can't even read. It looks so strange. This graffiti, people would, with a sharp stylus, dig into the plaster and they would write and they would draw. The most common graffiti there is of merchant ships. Some of the most incredibly detailed drawings of ancient ships is in this very hallway. But there's also, interestingly, there's fertility symbols and there's symbols of gladiators and people being killed because Smyrna excelled in blood sports. As most Roman cities were, they were incredibly, uh, they, they valued life very cheaply and they celebrated death and blood sports. Well, as we walk through and we continue to walk through these underground passages, we find some ancient uh, stele. These were stones with writing upon them. And you look at the next slide. This stele is important. The one there, about the third line down, if you know your Greek letters, you see the one that starts N-E-Omega. That's Neo-K-O. The P is actually an R. O-Sigma. Neo-Koros. You can all read Greek. Neochorus is the goal of these competitive cities. Neochorus is the emperor's reward to the most faithful, politically uh, supportive, the most staunchly Roman city, politically, religiously, and culturally. And they were given the title Neochorus, and when they got that, they were able to build a temple to the emperor. Three times in its history, Smyrna was named Neokoros. And this is one of the stele celebrating that. Pergamum, Ephesus, only two times each. And this was their greatest pride that they were religiously and politically Roman and they did not brook any dissent. This is the motivation behind the persecution of the Christians in Smyrna. Not only that, but you see an archway. That was part of one of the great temples built to the Roman emperors. That was the last of the Neocaros temples. It was to Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic philosopher, Roman emperor, the last of the five good Roman emperors. And on top of that arch, I zoomed in, and there is carved from life the bust of Faustina, the notorious wife of Marcus Aurelius. It's incredible. It's like they're alive again when you go to a place like this. But there they are, the worship of the emperor, Christians being excluded from the marketplace. It all begins to make sense. Well, the final, the next slide. There we are. That's the, we'll, we'll see a few more in just a, a moment. 
Finally, we come now to Jesus' letter. We've set the cultural context. You understand what these Christians are facing at the end of the first century. No longer treated as Jews, but now as outsiders, as anti-Roman, because they would not call Caesar Lord instead of Jesus. Let's turn now to their commendation. Jesus, he doesn't have an accusation. He commends and gives them a pat on the back. Job well done. That they're spiritually rich. Jesus calls them the richest of the churches, incredibly, because physically they were the poorest of all the seven churches. We see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, as Jesus addresses the church and it reflects that glorious vision on Patmos, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Again, the theme from John, Jesus is the one who was dead and is now alive, has broken the power of sin and death, and he lives forevermore, as do those who put their faith in him. This is even his address. He begins to encourage this church who are suffering and some even dying for their faith. We continue to his commendation in verse 9. I know. I love how Jesus begins. He knows. Whatever you're facing, whatever your struggles are, nobody else around you may know because you can put a smile on, but Jesus knows. He knows what you struggle, what you face. He knows what grieves you. He knows. And he knew exactly what was going on in the lives of these Smyrnan Christians. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows their poverty, their afflictions and suffering, and he knows the slander, the painful slander that comes to them, who those that were once known as their co-religionists, Judeo-Christian, now their separation, animosity, and slander coming to them. Jesus calls them a synagogue, not of God, but of Satan. The word Satan, remember, means adversary because they have made themselves adversarial to the followers of Christ. Unfortunately, passages like that throughout the history of the church for 2,000 years have been twisted and uh, have fed the poison of anti-Semitism. It saddens me to say He's one of my heroes of the Reformation. Martin Luther was a virulent anti-Semite and used passages like this out of context. This is a specific instance where these people have aligned themselves politically, religiously against the Christians. And we'll see what Scripture says about that in just a few minutes. I know what you're facing. Abject poverty, but Jesus tells them they're rich. Remember in Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about real possessions, real treasures, and things that will last. I love how Jesus addresses his believers, his followers. He's the good shepherd. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, 
a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The believers of Smyrna, their hearts weren't in their possessions. They were meager. They weren't in the pride of their city. They were citizens of a distant kingdom, the kingdom of God. Where their treasure was, that's where their hearts were also. You know, when the great burning of Smyrna happened, two of the quarters burned, the Armenian and the Greek quarter. The Jewish quarter didn't burn, but over time, the Jewish people were less and less welcome and were driven out. Fortunately, at that very same time in the decades after, the nation of Israel was reborn and the population moved in mass. Today, here's a picture. We found a synagogue. In fact, we found a thing called the Street of the Synagogues and we walked down it. And these synagogues have been rebuilt by the Turkish government and the EU as a, as a token of peace. And these synagogues are beautiful. They have their prayer books. They're ready for a service but they're empty. You can almost count the Jewish population of Izmir, which is three million people strong. You can almost count it on your hands. It's empty today. It breaks our hearts to see. It breaks our hearts. But Jesus, he revealed to us, and Paul later in the book of Romans, they say, you know, as Jesus once told them in the book of John, he says, don't call yourselves, don't don't take your security, your spiritual security on the fact that you were born to a Jewish family. He said, he said he could make Jews out of the stones of the ground, you know, racially, religiously, ethnically. He says that doesn't get us far in our relationship with God. In Romans chapter 2, the apostle Paul makes it very clear. He says in verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. And the circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. God doesn't want racial, ethnic followers. He wants people who worship him in spirit and truth. And people have taken that out of context and think that somehow uh, Christianity is anti-Jewish. You go to Israel today and you're blessed because the greatest supporters of the nation of Israel, Israel are the evangelical Christians in the West. Paul himself, in a beautiful passage in Romans chapter 11, it's not on the screen, but he says, all Israel will be saved. God keeps his promises. He hasn't forgotten his covenant people and neither should we. We should love them and share God's love with them on a daily basis. But it has to be a faith of the heart. Religion doesn't cut it with our Father in heaven. Well, that was their commendation. There is no accusation. Jesus moves right to their admonition and he tells them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If you're sick, if the doctor's giving you a bad diagnosis, if the weight of the years is getting heavy, if your family relationships are going sideways, don't be afraid. Jesus, 
who called out to his apostles as he walked on the water. It's the same Jesus who today is with you and has promised never to leave you. And he says, don't be afraid. Jesus knows there's hard times coming for the Christians in Smyrna and he commends them and he he admonishes them and encourages them with these words from Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. You notice he doesn't deliver them from the suffering, but he takes them through it for a greater ending. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. For 10 days, they're going to suffer. One of those One of those inscriptions I found as I was going through the subterranean passages under the Agora, it's this one. And not only is this one speaking of the gladiators and Christians being put to death, but one of the graffiti in that hallway shows actual gladiator sports and criminals and Christians and others who weren't accepted by society being killed publicly. That that carving, though, it was written on occasion of Neocoros, the great celebration, an earlier one during the New Testament times. And the chief priest of the emperor's temple carved this, a man named Julius. He writes, Julius, the chief priest of Neocoros, has organized to celebrate gladiator fights, including fights with sharp weapons for five consecutive days. They are going to clean out all of the prisons. They're going to put all the Christians, all of the people who aren't in step with Roman society, they're going to kill them publicly to celebrate for five consecutive days. Now, the reason scholars point to this carving is that the language, the actual Greek, is exactly the same that Jesus uses. You're going to suffer for 10 days. It's the same phrase, except the number is different. Jesus is referring to a greater celebration than Julius put on. Probably it was going to be a public demonstration of Roman power, a great civic celebration for 10 days. And who is going to bear the brunt of it? Criminals, outcasts, Christians. Those of you who aren't in step with the spirit of the age. It's fascinating. But James writing to another poor church, the Jerusalem church and early Jewish Christians who were among the poorest of the poor. Remember what James says in James chapter 1, verse 12. He said, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. It's the same crown of life that Jesus promises our brothers and sisters, and the young believers of Smyrna who gave their life and shed their blood out of their love for Jesus. Don't be afraid. Whatever you face as you become less in step with society, don't be afraid. And finally, we end with Jesus' promise. In visiting with uh, the Sailor family this morning, I said, it's no accident that our final as a church, our final thought today is God's promise. 
that for the believers in Christ, there is no harm in death. Physical death holds no harm for us. I love simple epithets on tombstones, headstones, and grave markers. I love the ones that speak of simple Christian lives, faithfully and well-lived. And one of the most beautiful epithets, as you see there, in God's care. They may no longer be with us physically, but our brothers and sisters who go to be with the Lord, they're in God's care. They're safe. They're alive. They're eternally young and healthy. What a blessed promise Jesus gives. He gives it in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, that's like finish, reach the finish line in that great stadium of faith. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. The concept of a second death is central to the book of Revelation. Remember, what is death? Death is always separation. It's the separation of your soul, the you who is really you from the body. That's physical death. That's the first death. But the death to fear is the second death. That's eternal separation of our soul from our loving, eternal God. That's what we experience if we take our sin to the grave. If we haven't let Jesus and what he did on the cross for us avail for us through our faith in Christ, we face eternal separation. God's word does not sugarcoat that worst of all tragedies. It calls it the second death. It pictures us as worse, as terrible as it can be, and the image in the book of Revelation of the lake of fire, that those places of waiting, the grave, Hades, death, all of them apart from Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and be separated from God. Revelation chapter 20 speaks of that. Sobering passage, but we have to attend to it because Jesus says this is what by faith we are spared from. We picture later in the book of Revelation the final judgment where everyone stands before God, Christians, unbelievers, everyone who has ever lived. And all the books are opened. Everything you've ever said, thought, or done is in God's book. And it's all brought out into the open. But there's another book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then Jesus himself is our judge when we come before him. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The second death. Friends, that's why we do what we do. Love the world that doesn't love us back. Tell people the good news of God's love. It's not who we are or what we have. It's who we know. It's the one who loves us and has saved us. The gospel means the good news. Second death is the bad news. The wages of sin is death. Separation from one another and from God. But the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Should not perish, but have eternal life. They were poor. They faced death. But in Jesus, we're rich. And death holds no harm for us. As the apostle Paul said on the eve of his own death, He didn't weep or mourn. With joy, he celebrated the finish line. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. This was written to a church almost 2,000 years ago. But it's for us as well. Let he who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this message. Lord, it's a powerful one. And it's hard to hear because it speaks of those important things like life and death Lord, we live in a culture that tries to pretend that death doesn't exist. And yet every cradle swings over the open grave. Birth and death are part of our mortal existence. And Lord, may we take that seriously and number our days aright. And Lord, live for those things which really matter. And Lord, store up treasure in heaven where thief cannot steal and moth and rust never touch it. Lord, that treasure is simply loving others with the love you give us. Those good deeds which we were created to do. Lord, not to be judges. That's not our job to judge. You're the perfect judge and we know that day will come. Lord, we are here to love and to share the good news. Lord, give us that motivation And keep in mind what each one faces. Lord, may we learn the lesson from our brothers and sisters in Smyrna, a city that has changed and no longer exists, even as our world changes today. Lord, give us courage to face what comes because we face it with Jesus. We pray all of this in his loving name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see many men, men's breakfast, remember, this coming Saturday at 8.